Well, here the, this morning we're coming to our uh, uh, the final part of the Lord's uh, what is known as the Lord's farewell address, uh, uh, his final discourse, uh, farewell discourse. It's the final portion of John chapter 16. These are the last words that the Lord will speak to his eleven disciples before his arrest and crucifixion, which are literally just hours away. Uh, we're probably sometime early in uh, Friday by this time, in the wee hours of the morning, all evening long as the uh, time to take a dinner together um, started. Uh, the, the Lord has been trying to encourage the hearts uh, of his disciples. Uh, he's demonstrated and declared his love for them. He's given them many wonderful truths, uh, some that they can't presently understand, but they will. Uh, the Lord has promised to send the helper of the Holy Spirit who is going to guide them into all truth and then the, who will come and glorify the person of Jesus Christ. So on this evening also, he has given them many warnings. He's told them that uh, he's going to die. He's told them that he's going to soon depart. He's told them that just as he has been hated, so too they're going to be hated. Uh, his followers are going to face persecution and suffering uh, just like he is facing. That will be their lot also. And he is also in, in trying to install confidence in them. He wants them to know what's coming so they would understand that no matter what's coming, he's aware of it. The Lord knows what's going to happen. And he wants them to trust him, just to keep trusting him. As they've trusted God the Father, trust him uh, and, and don't lose heart. But nevertheless, we understand the story. They're anxious, they're distressed, they're discouraged, downcast. Uh, they don't understand everything that he's saying to them, but uh, they're afraid to ask him for more information. And, and they're overwhelmed with sorrow. I, I told you, sorrow really has pushed out every other emotion. That's what's dominating them at the moment. Sorrow has overtaken them. Again, in spite of the Lord's repeated attempts to try to encourage them. Again, he's told them it's to their advantage that he departs and goes away. Because if he doesn't leave, then the, Holy, or the helper will not come. Uh, again, they don't understand that in full. They don't understand, again, the ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit in the world is to glorify Christ. To take us as Christ's people into a deeper and deeper understanding of him. To, explode, to expose to us over and over, and again, in a deeper, richer fashion, the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then last time, again, this continual attempt to encourage uh, the disciples. Uh, they, they don't know what's happening. They don't know what's coming in, in the next few hours, but the Lord does. And, and so he's trying to prepare them for what's coming. And, and again, in the next few hours, the, the disciples are going to watch the Lord being arrested or mocked, arrested, uh, scourged, then crucified. And, and their whole world is going to come crashing down at that moment. And again, they'd put all their hopes and dreams in him. Uh, their futures on Jesus. Again, they believe properly that Jesus is the Messiah uh, of Israel. And, and if you just stop and pull back a little bit, think about uh, just a, a week earlier, uh, consider the previous Sunday, how high their hopes were. Uh, he, he rides in Jerusalem. Remember, he rides into Jerusalem, and there's all the shouts of hosannas by the, by the crowds. But now he's saying, I'm leaving, I'm departing, and all the things that they'd hoped for and, and, and were looking forward to uh, are going to come to a sudden, shocking end uh, again as they watch the Lord suffer and die. But again, one more time, he's going to try to give them encouragement. One more time, he's going to try to give them hope. Look at verse 16. That's where we were last time. Verse 16. A little while, and you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while, you will see me. Some of the disciples therefore said to one another, what is this thing that he is telling us a little while and you will not behold me? And again, a little while you will see me and because I go to the Father. And they're also saying, what is this that he says a little while? 
We do not know what he's talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And and he said to them, you are deliberating together about this, that I said, a little while you will not behold me, and a little while uh, you will see me. So we spent the entirety of our time last uh, Lord's Day unpacking these verses. There's a whole lot more in there that I can go back over in just a very quick review. But in short, I told you that a little while you will no longer behold me, and again, a little while you will see me, refers to the events that begin to unfold at the cross. His death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, the ascension of Jesus Christ. I think that's the meaning of the first time he uses that phrase, a little while. A little while you will no longer behold me. And then the second time, and a little while you'll see me. And I laid out the reasons why. I laid out about three different possibilities, but I laid out the reason why I think what he's saying here, this is really the events that occur, this a little while you'll see me. That's really the events that occur at Pentecost. Because of the verse 17 plays in there where Christ says, I go to the Father. That's the ascension. So it's really not in the context, it's really not talking about the resurrection and then he's going to see, they're going to see him three days later. But it's really saying, look, at the crucifixion, it starts these events. And it's the events of Pentecost that he's talking about when Christ is going to come back. And then they'll see him again. They're going to see him because he's going to permanently indwell them through the person of the Holy Spirit. That's been his promise. And again, you have the unity of the, the Godhead on display. You have the Comforter who Christ has promised to send. He's going to come. He's going to be with them forever, the Spirit of truth. And he's going to abide in them, and he's going to be with them. You probably, Christ promised that, uh, that he would come back to them. John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. Here it is. I will come to you. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more. But you will behold me because I live and you shall also live. Right? So in verse 20 of that chapter, again, uh, uh, John 14. In that day, they shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. I mean, again, just wonderful truths concerning uh, the permanent indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit uh, that Christ has promised to send that's going to bring to them permanent joy. And Christ promised that I'm going to be with you and in you and and I'll never leave you or forsake you, right? Just tremendously encouraging words. Here in John 16, verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So he's saying, look, uh, the events of the cross, and when they unfold, your, your pain's going to increase. Uh, you're going to weep. You're, you're going to sorrow. You're going to lament. But the world is going to throw a party. That's what the world will want to do. Because the world hates Christ, and the world wants Christ gone. And the Lord told them that they would be sorrowful, but then he says, your sorrow will be turned to joy. Again, tremendous words of encouragement, tremendous words of hope from the Lord. One writer says this, he says, The Lord was not saying that the events causing their sorrow would be replaced by an event producing joy, but rather that same event, which is the cross, that caused their mourning would be caused for their joy. The writer says, The dark shadow of sorrow and grief cast by the cross fled before the brilliant, glorious light of the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. 
That light also caused the disciples to view the cross in its proper perspective, making an unending source of joy for them. Right? Weeping, lamenting the horror of the cross, a joy in the day of the resurrection on Sunday. But then 40 days later, the Lord, after 40 days, the Lord ascends into heaven. And then 10 days after that, the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he pours out within them understanding. He illuminates uh, for them, again, the person of Jesus Christ. He glorifies the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and again, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within the believer and Christ now also taking up residence within them. And then that event of the cross starts to becoming clearer. Uh, the events of the cross, the illumination of the cross becomes for the disciples and for us a great source of joy. Uh, again, they were once caught, uh, driven into deep despair and grief, but God in his kindness takes the greatest miscarriage of justice, the vilest offense that sinful man could ever commit against a holy God, the greatest act of human wickedness, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God by his great power and God by his great grace turns it into the greatest act of good for men who believe. The greatest source of eternal joy. That's the cross. Because it's at the cross our sins are forgiven. It's at the cross that God and man are reconciled. Because again, God has punished our sins in Christ. Christ our substitute. And because God has punished Christ and not punished us, and because Christ has punished our sins in Christ, we are declared just. We are declared not guilty and positively righteous before God because of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. So again, it's Christ's work, his resurrection, that allows the believer to stand in a position of no condemnation before God, reconciled, forgiven, given new life, given a new relationship with God, who now is our Father and never again is he our judge permanently indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, permanently indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. Again, Christ alive in us, empowering us, encouraging us, enabling us. Again, promising never to leave us or forsake us. And again, the person of the Holy Spirit continually illuminating the Scripture to us, opening our minds to the truth, our hearts to the truth, uh, glorifying Christ in us more and more, helping us to fall deeper and deeper in love with Him more and more conforming us to the image of Christ on a daily basis as we take up God's word and we study and we read of the, the person of Jesus Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And I told you the joy that he's talking about here is really a permanent joy. It's a permanent joy. Just like a woman who gives uh, birth to a child, verse 21 Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow her hour, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more, for the joy of that child has been born into the world. Again, the Lord is saying the event that causes the initial pain, like a woman in labor about to give birth to a child, becomes the permanent source of joy in her life because the child has been born. And she forgets all that travail. And so in the same way, he's saying the same thing about the cross. The disciples are going to grieve for a short period of time because of the events of the cross. But when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit comes uh, at the return of Christ on the day of Pentecost, they're going to have great comfort in the Lord's presence and great comfort in the Lord's promises. Verse 22, Therefore you too now have sorrow, but I, see, I say to you again, that your heart will rejoice, 
and no one, uh, and, uh, that your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy away from you. I mean, it's, it's a tremendously encouraging statement. He wanted the disciples to know on the eve of the crucifixion that all of their sorrows in this present evil age, all the things they're, they're going through, about to go through, will go through, all of the grief of the cross is really only for a little while. God in his great power and great grace through the cross is going to bring to them eternal joy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One commentator says this, he says, The joy we receive through the sin-atoning death of Jesus and his glorious resurrection power is a joy that will never end. The sorrow of the cross, so real and painful now, belongs only to this present evil age. But resurrection joy, which comes to us in the wonder of the new birth, will have no end. Therefore, he says, we should not be overwhelmed by bitterness of the world, but overwhelmed by the joy of resurrection grace. Isn't that good? That's why I read Colossians 3. We, we who have been united with Christ, we need to look up. We need to get our focus on the right things. There's too many things in this world that are trying to distract us. And we need to have our eyes looked up where God and Christ is. Now, again, the world obviously is full of all kinds of anxious anxieties and issues and problems. And present evil age, right? It's a day of sadness and time of sadness, disappointment. Uh, but praise God, the tomb's empty. Amen? I mean, that's reason to say amen. The tomb is empty, right? And, and Christ has defeated death. Therefore, it's that reality of our unity with the person of Christ. It's the reality of the resurrection of power of Christ that provides for us sufficient power to live life in this fallen world with great joy and praise, always. I said it last time, and I'm going to say it again. The Christian really should be the most joyous, joyous individual on the planet because your sin has been forgiven. You've been reconciled to God through Christ. You, you have a new life. And again, the cross that caused the initial weeping and lamenting of the, uh, of the, the disciples, God in his kindness, again, turns it into the greatest source of eternal, permanent joy because Jesus Christ defeated death. And the Holy Spirit now comes, and the Holy Spirit now dwells within when true believers. And, and again, when the Holy Spirit came initially and still presently when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells believers, what does he bring? Galatians 5.22, what does he bring? Love, joy, right? Isn't that the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Joy should be a part of your life because it's part of what God desires for you as his children. It's what the kingdom of God is about. Uh, Romans uh, 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans fifteen thirteen. now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Amen. Again, genuine believers indwelled by the person of the Holy Spirit are full of God's joy, permanent joy through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, a, ho- a joy that is unassailable. Again, look at verse 22. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. Again, no one takes your joy away from you because you're indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you are secure forever, eternally in Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, speaking John 10, verse 28, says, I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So again, no one can take your salvation from you. Therefore, no one can take your joy from you. It's a permanent joy. 
as a gift of God's kindness and grace to you as part of his family. That's why Paul says, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Right? We should be always rejoicing. Again, I'll say rejoice. Tremendous, tremendous encouragement. Now verse 23, which begins our text for this morning. Again, I just, I'm trying to look for other adjectives. I don't know. It's just tremendously encouraging. It's just overwhelmingly great, this whole study in John. And the section before us probably deserves more attention than we're going to give it this morning, but we're going to try to make our way to the end here. Verse 23, and in that day you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. In that day, you will ask me no question. Now, I think in the context that day, again, is the time when the Lord is going to, uh, or the disciples are going to see the Lord again. It's the time when their sorrow is turned to joy. And of course, that's the day of Pentecost. It's when the person of the Holy Spirit comes and indwells believers permanently and starts in, uh, illuminating truth. In that day, he says, you will ask me no question. Why is that? Well, because we're now in the age of the Spirit, right? In that day, we're in the age of the Spirit. They're they're no longer going to ask Jesus any questions because he's not there physically. But before the the day of Pentecost, what happened? Death, burial, resurrection, 40 days of teaching, and then what? Ascension. They're not going to ask him because he's not there. He's no longer physically present for them to ask him questions like they've done the entire time that they've been with him. I mean, when the Lord was with his disciples physically throughout his entirety of his ministry, they went to him for everything. They asked him every question on every issue. They went to him for every need, every desire, and every explanation came from him. But with him physically gone, again, after the ascension, and with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit, now... Uh, the, the Spirit is going to be their resident teacher. The Spirit is going to be their resident truth-teller, their, their resident comforter, their resident helper. Again, look back up at verse 13. Verse 13, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. Spirit of truth. He's going to guide you into all truth. A little bit further back, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but back in John 14, verse 26, he says, When the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Fast forward it to the end of, uh, close to the end of uh, the, the New Testament, over in 1 John 2, uh, 2, verse 20, John says, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things, and it is true and not a lie, just as it is, just at, as it taught you, you abide in him. Right? The spirit of truth is going to come and indwell the believer permanently. So again, no doubt after the resurrection, they probably got a few questions, right? Wouldn't you imagine? Uh, one or two. And they probably had many questions that they asked the Lord, and he answered them. And I think they probably had many questions that the Lord answered and questions they asked during the 40 days that he was with them between the resurrection and the ascension when he uh, taught them all things about the kingdom. But again, with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the New Testament and the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the men who will pin, uh, whom he chooses that will pin the New Testament text, we now have an entire New Testament full of inspired truth. 
We have an entire full testament, or an entire New Testament full of inspired truth that answers all the questions we want to know about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, why he's come, why he had to die, all about his resurrection, what relationship he had with the Father, and what exactly does his coming mean? What exactly does his resurrection mean for us? Again, this is in part why he said it's to your advantage. It's to your advantage that I go away, right? Back in chapter 16, verse 7. Because the Holy Spirit is going to send truth into the world through inspired writers. And we have the truth with us all the time. And all we have to do is pick it up and read it. And the person the Holy Spirit dwells within us, gives us a clearer and clearer understanding the more we study. In that day, you will ask me no question. Again, because in that day, they're going to ask the Holy Spirit. Right? And the Holy Spirit's going to answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything, he'll give it to you in my name. Now, I'm telling you, we, again, have to look at this the other side of the, their side of the cross because that's a stunning promise. That they could go directly to the person of God for anything. If they asked in Christ's name, in my name. If you ask in my name, he'll give it to you. It's an amazing promise that you can have direct access to God. It's an amazing promise that all the resources of heaven are available to the believer if they come to the Father in the name of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask the Father for anything. He'll give it to you in my name. Now, this is the third time in this discourse that Christ has made this stated truth. Uh, 14, verse 13, 15, verse 16, and here in verse 23. And I said previously, when we went through all that text of material, I said to pray in Jesus' name is not some kind of ritualistic formula that we tack on or attack on phrase at the end of the prayer to ensure our success and we get what we want. That's not what he's saying. But rather to pray in the name of Christ means that you pray in a way that is consistent with Christ's person and his will. And to pray in Christ's name is affirming one's complete dependence upon the person of Jesus Christ to supply our every need with the goal that God would be glorified, Christ would be glorified, glorified with the answer that comes from the Father. Ask the Father for anything. And again, it's really in the context of anything that's consistent with my will. Anything that's consistent with my divine purposes, consistent with who I am, knowing that this will again honor me and honor the Father, that which will further my kingdom, that will bring glory to me. Ask the Father for anything and he'll give it to you in my name. So again, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything, he'll give it to you in my name, is a remarkable statement. Paul wrote the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, through him, through Jesus, we have our access in one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 3.11, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Again, to have direct access to God the Father is an amazing reality, and it only comes through the mediatorial work of the person of Jesus Christ. At this time, God in Judaism was kind of seen as a distant deity. Someone who is far away. I mean, so elevated in their mind was the name of God, they never even used the name of God, right? And most certainly at this time, not only is God a distant deity, but he's never referred to as the Father. He might be the Father of the creation, he might be the Father of the the nation of Israel, but listen, he was never referred to as a personal Father because no man was that intimate with God. But listen to me, Jesus Christ changed all that. Jesus Christ changed all that. 
Jesus Christ's great saving work on the cross reconciles the believer to God. And it's his great mediatorial work that allows us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and may find grace in our time of need. Amen? It's the person of Jesus Christ. One writer says this, Christian prayer is offered to the Father. We pray through the mediating ministry of Jesus, God's Son. Our prayer spiritually is empowered by the Holy Spirit. As Paul explained, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Prayer like salvation is through the Son, by the Spirit, and to the Father. Jesus lived and died so that people would be forgiven, justified, restored to God the Father. And then to have direct access to God. He reconciles that relationship that we may go boldly to the throne of grace. It's a remarkable statement. And again, not a distant deity, but God our Father. Now another thing that I think you have to point out here at this moment, that listen to me, biblical Christianity, biblical Christianity goes through Christ to the Father, not through Mary. Biblical Christianity goes to God through the or goes through Christ to the Father, not through Mary, not through a priest, not through a, a, another mediator, but only Jesus Christ. Jesus said, John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Right? No one comes to the Father but through me. So again, when we come into the presence of God through the person of Jesus Christ, we're relying on Christ, His merit, His atoning sacrifice, His atoning blood. No merit of our own because we don't have any. We have no right on our own to go into the presence of God. No right to have, uh, expect any favor or blessing from God. Our, our merit is one. Our ability to approach is won by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet God now bids us to appeal to God as our Father in His Son's name. Again, the one who, to whom belongs all the treasures and resources of heaven. And again, we're bid to come before the throne of grace to our Father who is in heaven, our Abba, our Daddy. Again, not a distant deity, but one who's very personal, very intimate. So again, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just some kind of phrase we attach to the end of our prayer, but it really is the reality that we're coming into God's presence with that reality in our mind based on the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no right to come to you, but I come through Christ who stood in my place and allows me access to your presence. All right, is that understood? Now, on a side note, I, I think I have to mention this. Have you noticed in recent years, in recent time, uh, that there's an offense uh, taken by people when you pray in Jesus' name, uh, especially if you have some kind of a public event, public setting? When you have some kind of public event or public setting, people oftentimes omit the reference to Jesus and demand that we would omit a reference to Jesus, Jesus, right? Have you ever noticed that? It's just God. Thank you, God. Thank you, some veiled deity. I don't know who you are, right? I mean, that's just the way people pray. And, and when they're asking us or pressuring us not to come in the name of Jesus, what they want us to do is to acknowledge that there's a multitude of perspectives on the person of God and a multitude of perspectives on how we might access him. But listen, as Christians, we can't do that. We just can't do that. We can't do that and remain faithful. One commentator says this, 
not to pray in Jesus' name explicitly and unambiguously is to connect, conceal the necessity of his atoning death and faith in him as the sole ground of approach to God. The writer says it is to, to suggest by silence that there are other ways to God and that God will accept that prayer of those who do not know Christ as their Savior. Christless prayer is godless prayer. However pious it may sound, no one can come to the Father except through the Son. Again, it was Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's no other way. There's no other access. So we have to make sure that we're not feeling the pressure and cave to the pressure of the age that says, don't say that name. The world wants you to say a whole bunch of names, a whole bunch of nonsensical things, right? But we need to say the name of Jesus Christ. And if you think if you don't say the name of Jesus Christ, that's going to get you uh, uh, freedom from the, uh, uh, the world or the world's not going to persecute you. You've not read the same book I've read. We're called to give faithful witness. We're not called to manipulate circumstances in advance to hopefully we can have the outcome we want at the end and hopefully we don't get too much persecution from people if we stand up and pray in Jesus' name. But let me tell you what, Jesus Christ is the only access to God, right? And that's just reality and men need to know that. Apart from that reality of knowing that Jesus Christ is the only access to God the Father, men are going to die in their sins, all right? There you go. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Direct access, again, has been won for us. Direct access to the Father won for us by Jesus Christ. Again, God who's not aloof. God who's not distant. God who's not some reluctant deity. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything, he'll give it to you. In in my name. Again, in my name. Not carte blanche. Right? You don't don't get anything you want, anything you ask for. I mean, it's kind of sad you didn't have to mention that, but we know that even on a personal level, it's just human fathers, right? Do you give your kids everything they ask for when they come and ask you for it? Well, not if you love them. I mean, mean, sometimes uh, kids in their innocence and their youthfulness, they don't understand. They might be asking for things that are not in their best interest, things that are harmful for them. So again, we understand that on a human level, in my name, again, those things that are according to my plan, those things that are according to my purpose for the extension of my kingdom, for my glory, for your good. That's what it means to come in Jesus' name. Verse 24, he says, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. That's because in the context of the day that either asked him directly or they prayed to the Father, right? Uh, the point is they at this point had not gone into the Father's presence through Jesus Christ. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Again, answered prayer on the basis of the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, uh, coming uh, from an obedient life. I mean, that's a pretty powerful source for joy in the believer's life, that we have this great promise from Christ Christ that God will hear and answer our prayer, and that will be a joy in our life. And then I think it's interesting that uh, as, as you look at the events, I mean, Christ is quickly, just literally hours away from, from the cross, and where's his focus? It's just steadfastly on them, right? He's not thinking about himself. He just keeps pouring out things, words of encouragement, hope, comfort to the disciples because he has a tremendous love for them, a great love for them. Verse 25 says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. These things I have spoken to you in 
paromia is the word, uh, figurative language. I think the authorized King James says Proverbs. These things. Well, what things? Well, there's obviously, as you would imagine, there's a, uh, some discussion concerning this a phrase. What does this phrase exactly mean? Uh, I take it to be not just what he said in the previous paragraph, not what he has just said in that evening, but I would take it to be everything that he has said to his disciples, everything that he has taught to them for the last three years of teaching instruction, these things. These things I've said, right? Uh, these things I've spoken to you. All the things, all the truth that he's revealed to them uh, about himself. All the truth that he's revealed to them uh, concerning the Father. These things I've spoken to in figurative language. I think maybe some co- uh, uh, translations say proverbs, maybe even parables. Uh, I think one of the major translations says figures of speech. But I think the idea behind the word there in a figurative language in the NAS is probably the closest because what figurative language basically means is a veiled statement. It's truth that has been brought to light but still has some darkness. And again, throughout the entire ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, he spoke and what he spoke, the truth that he spoke to them was veiled to some extent, meaning the disciples didn't always understand what he was saying at the moment. Spoke to them about being light. Spoke to them about being bread. He spoke to them about the necessity of, uh, uh, of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He said, before Abraham was, I am. I mean, they understood some truths, many truths, but there was still some darkness. There was a veil kind of surrounding much of their understanding. And they don't possess the clarity at this moment in, in, the, in the historical timeline. They don't possess the clarity they need at this moment. Back in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. You remember the Pharisees were like, well, it took 46 years to build this. What is he talking about? They didn't understand, obviously, but the disciples don't even understand. Verse 22 of John uh, chapter 2, when therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered what he, that he had said this, and then they believed the scriptures and the word which the Lord had spoken. So after the resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, they have more clarity. Right at the moment, they don't have a capacity to see everything. And they themselves, I've told you this all along, they themselves have put a little bit of a veil over, over the whole situation, over their own eyes, because, again, they had one idea about the coming of the Messiah, that he was going to bring in the kingdom at this very moment. He was going to come, and he was going to overthrow all of Israel's enemies and set up his kingdom. Now, again, as we read on the, in the, uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we realize that's going to come in the future, but not at the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they adding this uh, uh, addition imposes a veil uh, 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 and really adds to their own confusion. That's why he says back up in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. I have much more to say to you, but, but you can't handle it. I, I can't go any further yet. Again, he's been talking about dying. They don't get it. They don't understand it. Then he's talking about rising from the dead. I certainly don't understand that. Now, there's enough truth that has been exposed for them to understand that he is the Messiah. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is sent from God, God's Son, God in the flesh. But there's not enough light to understand everything until... Until what? Until the Holy Spirit comes. Until they get the other side of the cross, right? We're on this side, their side. Until they get the other side of the cross, resurrection, ascension, and then what? Coming of the Holy Spirit. That's when the veil's lifted. See, we're on this side of the cross looking backwards. The veil's lifted for us. They weren't on that side. 
the veil was still there. And that, when the Holy Spirit comes, that's when they begin to see with great clarity. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of the truth, and He always points them to the truth, and He points them to the person of Christ. And the Spirit, person of the Holy Spirit is going to reveal all truth to them, and then the veil is removed, the darkness is lifted. Again, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming, he says, when I will speak to you no more in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. So again, an hour is coming. Well, what does that mean? I would best say the best answer is at Pentecost. Uh, again, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. When I will speak no more to you in figurative language. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. So again, at the coming of the Holy Spirit, the veil is removed. Everything is unveiled after the cross. The Holy Spirit comes. He's the resident truth teller. He's the resident indwelling teacher. He takes up residence in the life of the believer, and he teaches them all truth about Christ. Again, he's the one who inspires the writers of the New Testament, and the veil is removed. All the, all the way through the Gospels, the book of Acts, the New Testament letters, all the way into and through the book of the Revelation, everything is explained. Everything concerning who Jesus is, why he's come, his death, his burial, his resurrection, what all that historical reality means for the world. Everything concerning that, everything concerning the Father. I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. Again, that's part of the role of the person of, the, of Jesus Christ in the world. Reveal, he reveals the Father. Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone whom, to whom the Son will reveal him. John 1, 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. And let me tell you, we all desperately need a greater understanding of the Father. We desperately need a greater understanding of God, a greater understanding of His character, His attributes, His love. The the love of God that He would send His only begotten Son in the world to suffer and die in our place as our substitute. God who reconciled the world to Himself through Christ. God who is just and the justifier of sinners who believe in His Son. God who is well pleased because of his great grace and his great mercy to provide for us reconciliation, forgiveness of sin, new life. We all need a greater understanding of God the Father, the only true God. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, an hour is coming when I will speak to you no more in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father, verse 26, in that day... In that day, again, the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, time of the permanent indwelling of the Spirit. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. So again, when the Holy Spirit comes and permanently dwells believers, believers will have then the great privilege of direct access to the Father themselves. I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf, or I'm not saying I will ask the Father uh, for you, or, or, or in essence, you don't uh, need me at that moment to make requests for you to the Father. Because again, now you have the great privilege uh, of making that request directly to God. Well, why is that? How is that possible? 
How could we as sinners ever be granted the privilege of direct access to the holy God of the universe, to God the Father? Answer verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. For the Father himself loves you. That's a pretty incredible statement. Because the Father himself loves you. Therefore, you can go directly to God the Father and ask him anything that is consistent with my plans, his plans, my plans, his purposes in Jesus Christ, and know that he will receive that request. Again, all the riches of heaven are at your disposal. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift from above. All the riches of God's glory and grace in Christ, granting to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Again, why is that? For the Father himself loves you. The word there is phileo. It's the word that's used for brotherly love or familial love, family love. It's different than the uh, than agape love, uh, divine, supreme, sacrificial love of the will. Uh, John three sixteen for God so agape, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's a different word here. For the Father Himself, phileo, f- loves you with a deep love, an affectionate love, a familial love, a, a special love, a-, a love that belongs to only members of His family. Stop and think about that the next time you're having a difficult day. That the Father himself loves you. Stop and think about what a wonderful truth that is when you're struggling with whatever you're struggling with. The Father himself loves you. Think about the reality that the fact, or the reality of that fact that the Father himself loves you even though he knows everything about you. He knows your mind. He knows your shortcomings. He knows your frailties. He knows the thoughts of your heart. The Father himself loves you with an unconditional love, again, a familial love. Excuse me, a familial love, a family love. Why is that? The Father himself, verse 27 again, the Father himself loves you. Here it is, because you have loved me. He loves you because you've loved me. It's exactly what Jesus said back in John 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father. Verse 23, if anyone loves me and keeps my words, my Father will love him. That's pretty encouraging. One of the most important things that every man needs, every woman needs, every person in the world needs is we need to be loved and know that we're loved. In a world full of anxiety and troubles and fears and doubts and and questions, we need to be loved. And we need to know that with an absolute certainty. That we're unconditionally, that we're lavishly, that we're generously loved. <clears throat> Again, John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, tell us. Loved them to the end, in a vernacular, to the max. He loved them to the end, to the maximum amount of divine love. The Father himself loves you unconditionally, eternally. Again, as your Father in heaven, he's always watching over you, always caring for you with a paternal love, always waiting to minister for your welfare. Tremendous words of hope, tremendous words of encouragement, comfort. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me 
and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I mean, the greatness of that sentence is overwhelming. Because there in that sentence, that brief sentence really is the entirety of truth concerning the incarnation. The eternal one left heaven, came <clears throat> from the Father into the world to be born of a virgin, to be conserved by, conceived by the Holy Spirit, the one who lived a perfect life, who died a substitutionary death, who carried out the function of substitution that God the Father had sent him in the world to perform. Out of a tremendous love for a world of rebellious sinners like you and me. Christ dying on our place. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. He was absolutely innocent. But he suffered and died in our place. But he was raised from the dead. He defeated death. He came out of the grave. Paul says in Romans 4.25, He was delivered up because of our transgressions, was raised because of our justification. And therefore, having been declared just by the supreme judge, the supreme ruler of the universe, for us who believe, Romans 8.1, there is now what? No condemnation. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and again have believed that I came forth from the Father. They believed who Jesus Christ actually is. They believed the truth about Jesus Christ. Not that he was just a good man, not just that he was a great teacher, not that he was just some kind of religious individual, but they believed that he was the Christ. Matthew 16, verse 15. Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You have loved me and believed that I came forth from the Father. They just affirmed the deity of Jesus Christ. They affirmed that he was a member of the Trinity, uh, the second person of the Godhead. And apart from affirming the deity of Jesus Christ, no man can be saved. It was Jesus who warned those who rejected him back in John 8, verse 24. He says, therefore, I say to you, you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am You'll die in your sins unless you believe that I am Yahweh, I'm God of the Old Testament. You'll die in your sin. To reject the biblical Jesus, to reject the biblical truth that Jesus is God, that Jesus is none other than Christ, God come in human flesh, is to believe in a false Christ and to believe in a damning gospel. It's to be satanically deceived and led away from the truth. And there are many, many false Christs, many false teachers, many, many deceivers in the world who reject Jesus Christ and his deity and fail to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. So when you hear anybody say that kind of uh, uh, blasphemous truth, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. That's the spirit of the deceiver. That's 2 John verse 7. That's the very sin that the Jewish religious leaders were guilty of committing. They rejected Christ, and they vehemently refused to believe that Jesus was God sent from the Father. Therefore, they placed themselves under the eternal, God, eternal condemnation and judgment of the Father. 
Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Again, that's the ascension, right? Acts 1, verse 9, lifted up in their sight as they were looking on. A cloud received him Verse out of their sight. Verse 11, Jesus, who's been taken up for you into heaven, is going to come in the same way so the angels told the disciples. I came forth from the Father, I've come into the world, I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. And the Bible says now presently, that's Jesus Christ. Where's Jesus Christ presently? Jesus Christ is he who has died, who is rather raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, Romans 8, verse 34. That's where he's at presently. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He, Jesus Christ, is the one, Hebrews 1, 3, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, who upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where Jesus Christ is. Therefore, the writer of the book of Hebrews goes on, says Hebrews 12, verse 2, we are to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So to the disciples, he said, look, you've loved me. You believe that I came forth from the Father. Very simply, they believe the gospel. They believe the truth about Jesus Christ. In just a very short few words, a description of the eternal redemptive plan of God has been uh, laid out. The eternal plan carried out in time. God incarnate, God coming from heaven to earth, going back again to heaven. The one whom himself came out of his own love for fallen, rebellious mankind like us, giving himself as our propitiatory sacrifice. Come from the Father, I've come into the world, I'm leaving going to, uh, leaving the world and going to the Father. Verse 29, the disciples said to him, Lo, now you are speaking plainly. You're not using figurative speech or figure of speech. Uh, again, they're beginning to understand. Right? The, the truth is becoming clear to them. Again, he's already spoken to them and he's teaching about his origin, about his mission, uh, about his return to the Father, the Father's love for them, their access, direct access in veiled speech. But now he's going to start doing it directly. I came from the Father. I've come into the world. I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Pretty simple words. They can understand what he's saying. Came down from heaven. He's divine. Came down from heaven. He has work to do. He's done that work. He's going back. Verse 30. We know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. You should probably put an asterisk by that verse in your Bible because that's probably one of the most straightforward declarations of the deity of Christ that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. We know you know all things. What is that? Omniscience. All knowledge. Who does all knowledge belong to? Answer, deity, God. We know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you've come from God. So again, the disciples believe that Jesus was the Holy One of God, the Son of the living God. He, they believe that he was the one who came into the world to die as a sacrifice for sin and rise again to prove, provide justification for men before God who would believe. They know that they have direct access because of him. They believed in him. They believe that. And to believe on the level of belief here means that you're putting your complete trust and faith in that person, and that's what they did. 
They, can put their, they put their complete faith and trust in Christ. Again, they believed he came from heaven. They believed he knew all things. Therefore, they believed that he was God come in human flesh. And that is the foundation of Christian truth. Believing that Jesus Christ is God. Believing that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. They believe that. They affirm that belief. This is the height, the high point of their confession. Verse 31 is a little confusing. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? And in most of the translations, <clears throat> it's translated as an interrogative in a form of a question. But the reality is in, in the Greek, in the original language, it's an indicative. It's not a question, it's a statement of fact. And if you have the NIV, this is one of the few times I would encourage you to read the NIV, but they got it right. It says, you believe at last. Jesus answered, right? That, that's it, you believe at last. Verse, verse 31, it's not Jesus really questioning their faith. He's affirming their faith. He's declaring their faith. They understand the truth. Again, they understand to the best of their ability in the context of the history of unfolding truth, right, before the cross, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, they understand he's God in the flesh. They understand that from their perspective at this moment on their side of the cross, again, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the Christ. They understand he's come down from heaven. He has the work that God has sent him to do, and then he's going back. And Jesus affirms that. You believe at last. Now, I think we should probably just stop there and go home. That would be a good spot if I was writing this text. I'd probably leave and say, that's a good place to leave. Because we always want to end the story very happily, right? But it doesn't end there. A couple more verses. These men do genuinely believe, but their faith is immature. Verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. Trouble's coming, literally just hours. Just in a couple of hours. They're going to go to the garden. Jesus is going to be arrested. And they're all going to flee. They're all going to run away. Zechariah 13, 7 says, Smite the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. But after the Holy Spirit comes, they boldly stand for the truth. They boldly stand for the truth of the person of, the, uh, of Jesus Christ, and they do that all the way to their death. But right now, the other side of the cross, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, they're going to flee. Again, the, the pressure of the moment, the weakness of their flesh, is going to cause them to fall. And although these men will leave Christ, the Father won't depart from him Verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming, has already come for you to be scattered, each one to his own home, to leave me alone. And it goes on, And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Now the Father is with him, with the obvious exception of the very moment and time where Christ bears the sins of the world, right? You say, where is that? It's in the book of Matthew. Matthew 27, verse 26, where Christ cries out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It's at that very moment where Isaiah says it like this. Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. As the result of the anguish of his soul, my servant will justify the many. He'll bear their iniquities. He's poured himself out to death, bearing the sin of many, interceding for the transgressors. That's Isaiah's uh, version of this or view of this situation, this moment of time. Paul puts it like this at that very moment. 
when he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God the Father is with me except for that moment when Christ becomes the sin, the sin bearer. Verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Again, these things, all the Christ has taught the disciples. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. I think it's entirely uh, important to <clears throat> realize that these are the very last words <clears throat> that Christ speaks to his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. Again, where's his focus? Not on himself, but on them. He, he wants them to have peace. In this world, you have thalipsis. It's tribulation. It means pressure, opposition, distress. We get it, right? We live in a present evil world system. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's full of, the world's full of trouble dominated by sin. It's a world full of evil. And that evil just keeps pressing in upon us. It's crushing us. The world hates us. The world is hostile towards us. It hates Christ. And again, Christ has been telling these men these truths. Persecution is coming. He wants them to know the future. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard because he loves them. And then he wants them not to be surprised when it happens. And again, literally, just in a, in a few hours, Christ is going to be crucified. And they're going to weep. They're going to sorrow. They're going to lament. They're going to be fearful of their own safety. Again, they're going to run. But after the events unfold and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, after the, again, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, every single one of these men is going to stand up and give account for Christ with the exception of John who dies in exile. Every one of them is going to give their life for a proclamation of the truth of what they believed about Jesus Christ. Persecution's coming. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it was for these men. It was the way it was for the early New Testament church. It's the way throughout of history, all of church history, all the way even into our times. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. He said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Next phrase, but take courage. In the Greek, it's a command. Take courage. Be of courage. Be of good cheer. Uh, one of the translations says, take heart. Literally, don't be afraid. And I think what you need to know what is special about that word is every time it's used in the New Testament, it is spoken only by Jesus Christ. He's the only one that uses that phrase in the New Testament. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He, he's the one who's in charge of everything. He's the sovereign. He, he's the one who's been sent into this world out of the tremendous love that the Father has for you. He's the one who sent the person of the Holy Spirit into the world so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That you might believe the gospel. 
and that by believing in Him, you might have your sins forgiven and you might have life eternal in His name. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you have tribulation. Take courage. Cheer up. Again, don't be afraid because you're loved by the Father, loved by me. Your future is secure because of me, because of my propitiatory sacrifice. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. Next phrase, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Nikeo, uh, more commonly in our culture, Nike, right? Nike. It means absolute victory. Conquered. Prevailed over. Take courage, I have overcome the world. These are the last words that Jesus Christ says before his crucifixion to his disciples. These are a word of hope. And that's what we all desperately need, right? We all desperately need to be loved and know that we're loved. We all desperately need to have hope. Christ wants his followers to know that in spite of all the evil that is in this world around them, there's one who has power over this world and one who is actually absolutely defeated and victorious over the world. So again, the whole world may lie in the power of the evil one, but it's a designated power uh, the devil's not in control of this world in the total sense. The devil's not in control of the future of this world, but the Lord Jesus Christ is. In the world you have tribulation. Take courage. I have overcome the world. That's a word of hope. So in spite of what we're told, in spite of all the nonsense, it's just it's absolutely endless. The world's not spiraling out of control. But the world is being directed by God himself who overcomes the, ev- the, the most evil in the world, again, the most evil act that's ever been perpetuated on this planet is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God in his power and grace turns it into the greatest joy, the greatest good of the salvation for men who would repent and believe upon Christ. So Christ says, look, you're going to have tribulation, take courage, I've overcome the world uh, because of the cross. Tremendous words of hope. So if you're here this day and you are one who's loved by Christ, you're loved by the Father, you have been called out of, from eternity and from in time out of eternity into time, and you responded by faith and you come to the Savior, you have great reason to what? Rejoice. You have a joy that can never be taken from you. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So my dear friends, we need to walk in that peace. We need to walk in that great hope. We need to be cognitive of that great love that the Father and the Son have for us. And keep what? Looking up where our hope comes from. Cling to Christ. Trust the Word of God, not be swayed by the circumstances of a fallen world around us. Don't trust your feelings. Trust the Word of God. Put your hope, your faith, your trust in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who overcame the world, the one who's defeated sin, death, and Satan, and the one who now sits at the right hand of the Father in a position of power, always interceding for those of his own family.